Tikoti Vaishna Rindakita, Namataya Shilahoidas Takur Kita, Prem Shikahoshi Krishna Chaitanya Prabhunitananda, Shiadwaita Kadadhar Shivasadi Gora Bhakta Rindakita, Shishi Radha Krishna Gogopina Shaima Kunda Radha Kunda Giri Govardhana Kita, Rindavan Dhamma Kita, Matur Dhamma Kita, Nabaji Mayapur Dhamma Kita, Jagannath Puri Dhamma Kita, Gangamaya Jamuna Devi Kita, Bhakti Devi Kita, Tulsi Maharani Kita, Samaveta Bhakti Rinda Kita, Gorpamananda. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Garanga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada and Om Vishnu Padaya. Krishna Prasaya Bhutale Srimati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Niti Namane Namaste Saraswati Deve. Gauravani Pacharani Nivasesa Samyavadi Pasca Chade Satani. Vandeham Sri Guru Sri Yuta Padakamalam. Shri Guru Vaishnavam Shashi Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitams Tam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Paditana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Ravita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha Panchakapati Vishakti Pasin Vivatap Tichanam Pavanina Vaishnavam Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya May 24th, 2017 in Denver, Colorado We're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3, Chapter 12, Text 49 I'm also going to read 50 and 51 Tato Paramupadaya Sasargaya Manodare Tataha Thereafter Aparam Another Upadaya Having accepted Saha He Sargaya In the matter of creation Manaha, mind, dadhe, gave attention. Translation and purport by Shri Prabhupada. Thereafter, Brahma accepted another body in which sex life was not forbidden, and thus he engaged himself in the matter of further creation. Purport. In his former body, which was transcendental, affection for sex life was forbidden, and thus he engaged himself in the matter of further creation. Now, Sorry, I jumped up to the verse. In his former body, which is transcendental, affection for sex life was forbidden, and Brahma therefore had to accept another body to allow himself to be connected with sex. He thus engaged himself in the matter of creation. His former body transformed into fog, as previously described. So I'm going to read the next two verses. They don't have purpose, and I thought we'll give some context to what's happening here. So text 50, O son of the Kurus, when Brahma saw that in spite of the presence of sages of great potency, there was no sufficient increase in population, he seriously began to consider how the population could be increased. 51, Brahma thought to himself, Alas, it is wonderful that in spite of my being scattered all over, there is still insufficient population throughout the universe. There is no other cause for this misfortune but destiny. Tato param upadaya tat sargaya manam tade. 
Therefore, Brahma accepted another body in which sex life was not forbidden, and thus he engaged himself in the matter of further creation. So Brahma has a particular duty to do for the Lord. What's his duty? To create progeny. So why is he supposed to do that? Why is he supposed to make sure that there's lots and lots of living entities in the universe? What's the service purpose for that? Yeah? So, so they can carry out their material desires and come back to the Lord? Yes. So that the conditioned living entities, who before the creation, where are they? In Mahavishnu's body, right? In a, in a kind of very deep sleep, one could say. So to give all those living entities some opportunity, some field of action so that they can both fulfill their material desires and so that they can attain devotional service. And that's very much the mercy of the Lord. You know, the, there are many religions on the planet today that teach that if you don't want to surrender to the Lord, then you go through some sort of never-ending punishment, right? Like you're, you're burning eternally in a lake of fire or something like that. And I always wonder, when I hear such things, why anybody would be inspired to worship a God who was of that mentality. You know, if any of us was of that mentality, we would be imprisoned. So if any parent said to their child, you know, if you don't completely surrender to me, then I'm going to roast you, you know, for 20, 30 years. So you'd be in prison for being abusive, yes? But somehow people think that God is like that. So Krishna could also take rebellious living entities and just put them eternally in some state of suspended animation, which is what happens in the body of Mahavishnu. Okay, if, you know, if you're not going to be with the program, you can just basically stand in the corner. So you could say, right, if you're not going to go with the program, you can suffer. And if you're not going to go with the program, you can just go in a time out. And of course the Lord does that. It says in the fifth canto, that the Lord becomes so disgusted with the living entities not taking the proper spiritual advantage of the creation that he does this periodic destruction. I mean, I'm sure we can all relate to that. You're trying to help somebody, 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 you're trying to help somebody. somebody. And they refuse to be helped, and then after a while you're like, oh, forget this. Forget it. So periodically the Lord says, forget it, go to sleep. And then again, he's like, okay, another chance. Uh, another chance. So this is Brahma's service, is to give living entities another chance. Without some sort of form with which to interact, we wouldn't have any kind of chance. Because our original form, our spiritual form, is only meant for pure bhakti. You can't, can't use your original spiritual form in sense gratification. It's, it's incompatible. Like Brahma even had a problem with his first body. Prabhupada called it transcendental. That, that, the, it wasn't, that body wasn't suitable. And when he tried to use that body in another way for which it wasn't suitable, then it caused a disturbance. 
So the pure living entities in their pure spiritual bodies are not able to be in illusion. It's just that our spiritual, it's incompatible. That body, our pure spiritual body, our original swarup, is a manifestation of our individual desire and how we want to express love for the Lord. You know, I, I want to be the Lord's flower, or I want to be the Lord's cow, or I want to be the Lord's uh, beloved, or whatever our particular desire is. So if we're going to have a time in illusion, we have to have a body of illusion. And you can say, well, how does that facilitate our spiritual awakening? Because even the body of illusion is really Krishna's energy. Diviation between the mind. It's Krishna's energy also. This question, of course, is asked uh, repeatedly by great saintly persons. This was the question that starts off the chapter in the 10th Canto, Prayers by the Personified Vedas. That if the Lord is transcendental, then how can we use our material body? Bed is a good place for sleeping. Appropriate. If you're really tired, maybe you should go take a rest. I could try to be more entertaining. But I didn't bring any fireworks or anything, so if you're really tired, you should go sleep. So the sages ask this question How is it possible if the Lord is transcendental to? find him through material means. You know, that's the great mystery, Prabhupada says, of the material creation. And the answer is that everything is Krishna's energy. And it, it's fascinating to me how many times in the Shastra, by the Acharyas, by Shri Prabhupada, they'll say these kind of things. That everything is Krishna's energy. We can access Krishna through his energy. So I was just reading yesterday, the day before, in Nectar Devotion, one of the symptoms of ecstasy is alertness. And in this state of alertness, anytime you contact a sense object, anytime you touch or taste or see or hear anything, you feel you're in the presence of God. Wow. You'd be constantly, everything is acting as a stimulus. And Prabhupada also, in a lecture on Nectar Devotion, says to the advanced soul, they don't actually see a material world at all. He says three times in the lecture, there's no material world, there's no material world, there's no material world. Maya exists only within the mind. It's a particular conception. So therefore, this so-called, Prabhupada says, it's so-called inferior energy, also in a Nectar Devotion lecture. He said, because no energy of the Lord can actually be inferior. He says inferior in this sense, that when you're under the grip of that energy, you forget the Lord. So anyway, this energy can also be used. Prabhupada talks about that you can wire a device to both heat and cool. Yes? Many of us have the, we might have this kind of device in our home that you can turn it to heating or you can turn it to cooling, the same device. So therefore, Brahma has this service. He has a service of giving the rebellious living entities a suitable form by which they can check out illusion because that's what they want. And Eko Bahunam Yovirodati Kaman, Krishna's giving living entities whatever they want. He's actually a very permissive kind of parent. So that they can try to fulfill their material desires, but also by using that energy properly under the direction of the sages, under the direction of the Shastra, they can use that so-called uh, inferior energy, material energy, to connect with Krishna. That's his service, and that's a very important service. It's a very, very important service. It's a manifestation of the Lord's what? Mercy. Mercy. It's the same kind of service that we're doing here, in Iskand Denver. Well, we are not really doing anything. 
But those of you who are running this center and who are maintaining it in so many ways, that's what you're doing. You're giving facilities for living entities to reconnect with the Lord. And if we didn't give that facility, it would be very difficult. The living entities would be lost. Is it a lot of trouble to maintain the center? Yeah, it's a lot of trouble. It's not easy. It's not some easy thing. It's not easy to get the money to buy or build a place. It's not easy to maintain the building. It's not easy to maintain the standards of worship. It's not easy to maintain the standards of cooking. It's not easy to maintain the standards of cleanliness. And particularly, it's not easy to deal with the interpersonal relationships among the people who both have stayed here a long time and who visit. That's the hardest thing. That's much harder than repairing the plumbing and and getting the, the money because you're dealing with people who have all different sorts of conditioned attachments. You know, they're in the shower, but there's still bits of dirt here and there, and the bits of dirt interact with each other and fight. Yes? And so it's, it's extremely difficult. And Logan was also having a difficult situation here. You know, it's kind of like when we have a program and nobody comes. And we have some temples like that. I visited some temples where nobody's there. I don't know if any of you have ever visited temples like that. I've been to some temples where, you know, if I go to Mangalarti, I'm the only one in the temple. It's just me and the Pujari. I was in one temple like that. And right after Tulsi worship, the Pujari comes off the altar and he turned off all the lights in the temple so it was pitch black. And then he put on a CD of Prabhupada chanting with like a Shania in the background. Prabhupada chanting Japa, maybe you've heard that one? It drives me bananas. So I'm thinking, I'm the only one chanting Japa in the temple room, so I turned it off. I thought, he's not chanting his job on the altar with the deities. And he immediately comes off the altar and turns it back on. So here I'm in this dark cave with this <laughs> with strange CDs. I just forget it. I'm not going to chant my job in the temple room. You know, and then I remember when I, they asked me to get Bhagavad Gita class, and there's like two people in the temple room. So you, you see many temples like this. Right? There's another temple, which right now I've read we're at risk of losing, where... You know, the temple president and the pujari and the cook is all the same person. And again, you know, you go to the program and there's nobody there. She's the only one there on the altar. And not only is she, is she there on the altar taking care of the deities, but somehow many devotees who get tired of worshiping their own deities decide to give them to her. You know, I got these deities, but I don't think I can worship them anymore. Here, you have them. So... To the side of the altar, there's like another altar that's covered with all these shelves with all these deities from all different devotees. You know, it's like 15 sets of deities on the side, and then there's, I don't know, three or four or five sets of coin titans on the altar, and she's the only one running the whole program. You know, so that's like it. So she cooks once a, once a day. You know, there's one prasad of per day that she's cooking for Gorni Tigers and she's got to clean the whole place and maintain the whole place and, and etc, etc. And, uh, so it's not that, that's kind of discouraging when you go to a place like that, isn't it? I mean, all glories to the people who maintain such places. But it's kind of, so Lord Ramah is feeling discouraged. He's looking around the universe and it's empty. You understand? You know, here you've set this whole thing up, you've manifested all the planets and all this stuff and you look around and there's nobody there. 
And Lord Brahma thought that his creation of the great sages like Rishi, as explained in text 1551, he thought that would be sufficient. He thought he would do the job. But they didn't. So does that ever happen to us too? That you know we, we designate and delegate and nobody does anything? <laughs> well, they don't do it very well. And so that's what's happening to Lord Brahman. He's saying, all right, I have to. What? It's empty. The people you asked to do it didn't do it. So I have to do it myself. Alright, I gotta do it myself. And the problem was he couldn't do it himself directly in the body that he had. It wasn't suitable for that. You know, it's, it's interesting if we're not being able to get enough people coming, we don't usually think about changing our body. We may think, well, we'll change our advertisements, we'll we'll change what prasada we're serving. I was at one temple where the Sunday feast was solid chilies. The rice had chilies in it. The rice. Big pieces of chilies sitting on the top of the rice. I said, no wonder you're not getting any, you know. I said, who's going to eat here? Only people from like India and Thailand and nobody else will eat here. So we may like adjust those sorts of things. But most of us don't think, well, let me change my very body. What an amazing sacrifice Lord Brahma is doing. He said, okay, I've got to do it myself. I've got to get, another, got to get a new body. And it's very interesting, I don't, I don't want to kind of steal the thunder but from the upcoming verses, but we should just mention that this new body that he gets uh, becomes, it, he stays as Lord Brahma, but then he produces a male and female form who are considered him. They're not his children. They're actually him. So he himself takes a male and female form and produces children in that way. And uh, the most significant child he produced in that way, as far as increasing the population, was Devahuti. And how did Devahuti increase the population? What was the main means by which he did that? She had nine daughters. She had nine daughters, yes. And those nine daughters married the sages that Brahma, who Brahma had produced directly from his body. And that way the population started increasing. Of course, later the population also increased, increased from the 60,000 daughters of Daksha. But that's Daksha in another manifestation, not, not Daksha in his first manifestation as a direct son of Lord Brahma. So Lord Brahma is going to some very flexible solutions. And this Necessity of having flexible and innovative solutions is very important if we want to spread the Krishna consciousness movement. So I was uh, speaking in Uvrindavan to one uh, brahmachari who was visiting from another temple. He's the, the head of a program there. And he said, well, you know, I'm always worried about doing any kind of, of innovation because we want to just follow Srila Prabhupada. I said, well, if you're going to follow Srila Prabhupada, then Shiva Prabhupada also innovated. He said, if you're going to follow our tradition, our tradition says explicitly that we have, adjust, have to adjust for time, place, and circumstance. It's one of the 14 items of knowledge that one should know time, place, and circumstance, and one should adjust for time, place, and circumstance. It's one of the qualities of Krishna that's shared by the living entities, and it's one of the main demarcations of someone who's alive. 
So if you're alive, you have two salient features. One is you have a continuing sense of identity that doesn't change in time, place, and circumstance. And two, you can adapt or adjust for changing circumstances. Like we can adjust for different temperatures, yes? It's one of the most documented adaptations of the human body. That our body actually changes when we go from a very hot to a very cold climate and vice versa. The change takes a little while to happen, which is why in the military they never ask people to fight immediately if they've changed them from one climate to another. They give them two to three weeks to adapt. But the body does change. Our circulation changed, our perspiration changes. We adapt. We adapt to different kinds of food and different amounts of food supply. Yes, everybody's familiar with this? If there's not enough food, our metabolism goes into a different function. So we have so many abilities to adapt to our circumstances. And we see human beings, particularly human beings, are all over the planet in very different environments. And yet we've adapted to those different environments. And Shilabhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati said very strongly that we have to be very careful that we do not have any kind of a mechanical organization that whatever spiritual organization we have also has to be living. You know, if you study organizational forms, you'll see that bureaucratic organizations are categorized as mechanical, and other kinds of organizational forms are categorized as organic or living. So a living organization, like a living being, has two main qualities. It keeps its identity, and it adapts to circumstances. So it adapts to circumstances without losing its identity, and it keeps its identity while adapting to its circumstances. So this is what Lord Brahma had to do. And you can say, well, that's a little difficult to do. And the answer is yes. When Burjan Prabhu asked you the Prabhupada, how do you tell the difference between principles that must not be changed and details that must be changed? Prabhupada said that requires intelligence. And reminds me of one of my favorite letters from Srila Prabhupada on a completely different subject where he said, that requires common sense, and if you don't have any, any ask someone who does. Uh, I would venture to say that the majority of our uh, cultural and preaching arguments in our movement stem from trying to figure out, well, what is our identity that must not... I don't mind children. Does anyone here strongly object to children? By the way, if you do strongly object to children, our movement will not grow. So, just keep that in mind. Yeah. There has never in recorded history been a religious organization that grew strictly by converts. Never happened. There's no religious organization that has existed for 100 years or more and had a large number of adherents simply by converts. You have to have also children. Prabhupada said, all glories to the assembled devotees includes the children. Now, if the children scream, they have to be taken out. Normal children noises. So, I'm personally convinced that most of the, you know, heated arguments in our movement about how we should preach Krishna consciousness and how we should live come from trying to figure out what's a detail and what's a principle. A principle. You have some people who feel that everything is a principle, and every, every single thing is a principle. You can't change anything. We have to continue to have a Sunday love feast 500 years from now. You know, which was definitely an adaptation that Sheila Prabhupada made. And some people who think everything is a detail. You know, we can change everything. So 
and then people in between. So Lord Brahma was able to keep his identity as Lord Brahma, but change his body. Pretty amazing. Actually changed his body, changed what his, uh, what his form was capable and allowed to do. You know, most of us, when we change our body, we also change our identity, isn't it? Yes? We forget our previous identity. But he was able to do that. He was able to make such an extreme change and keep his identity. So this ability to keep our identity, to keep our core principles, to keep who we are, to keep our siddhanta, to keep what is essential, to never compromise what is essential, never compromise our identity. And at the same time, be flexible enough to see, hey, the material nature is endlessly immutable, and therefore we may have to adjust if we're not getting the results that we want, if we're not getting the results that would please the Lord. It's like you've got to know where you're going, what's your goal, what's your vision. You have to be able to tell whether or not you're getting there. And if you're not getting there, you have to change course. That sounds pretty logical, right? If you're driving from here to San Francisco, first thing you have to know is, where am I going? You have to know, I'm going to San Francisco. If you don't know where you're going, who knows where you're going to end up? I'm just going somewhere. When I was a teenager, my friends and I would just, and gas was 27 cents a gallon. My friends and I would sometimes go for a ride to no place in particular. I don't know if teenagers do that anymore. With gas so expensive, I don't do it anymore. But that was a pastime with high school students. Let's just get in the car and drive somewhere. Where are we going? I'm just going for a drive somewhere. But we have to have, we shouldn't be like that. We should have a goal. Where am I trying to go? Where am I personally trying to go? I'm trying to attain. I hope we're all trying to attain to Krishna Prema, yes? Fraj Krishna Prema. And then where are we trying to go as, you know, our, our particular project that we're working on, whether it's dressing the DVs or cooking in the kitchen and managing the whole temple and managing a university preaching program or managing the whole society. You know, where are we trying to go? What's our goal? And then we should be able to tell whether or not we're getting there. So one devotee wrote me recently and said, I don't know what the signposts are as to whether or not I'm making advancement. I said, they're all in Madhurya Kadambani. So there, there are signposts to tell, you know, and am I actually achieving my goal? Lord Brahma looked around and said, I'm not achieving my goal. I did the things that I thought would achieve my goal, and they didn't work. So if you're doing something and it doesn't work, then you need to change. That sounds very like, duh, but I think for many of us, it, it's not like that. In New Vrindavan, they have a sign on the road that when you go out of the welcome center on the left, it says, no outlet. Do not follow your GPS. Turn around. There's a phenomenon the police call death by GPS. Have you heard of that? That sometimes the GPS gives people wrong instructions. And people are so wedded that I have to follow my GPS. They end up in the middle of a desert. And sometimes, I mean, generally they don't actually die, but sometimes they actually die. They end up in some remote area 
They don't know how to get back. And they're just, I've got to keep going this way. 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 So if we're acting in a particular way and we're not getting the results, something's wrong. If I'm driving and driving and driving and driving and driving to San Francisco and I don't see any of the landmarks of getting there, then I'm probably on the wrong path. Does this make sense to everybody? Srila Prabhupada emphasizes over and over again that it's not yet Yatimatatapad. It's not like whatever you do, you achieve the same result. It's not just a matter of sincerity and good-heartedness. Well, as long as I just have the right motives and, and I'm good-hearted and sincere, whatever path I follow, it's not like that. <laughs> you know, we understand it's not like that in a car, but it's not like that in, in life, right? So he's saying, okay, I have to make some sort of change. And again, he makes a change without sacrificing his identity. He doesn't lose sight of, of what he's trying to do. He doesn't, he's making a change to facilitate his service and his identity not to change that. He's changing the method. He's making a very extreme change of method. Yes? He's making a change of method that involves a tremendous amount of personal sacrifice. Wouldn't you say so? To go from a body that Prabhupada is categorizing here as transcendental. Of course, this change reminds me of one of the persons produced by this change. And that's Priyavrata. Because when Lord Brahma becomes Manu and Sadarupa, one of the children they have is Priyavrata. And Priyavrata is also in a transcendental position. And then he's asked by Lord Brahma, hey, you need to do what I did. You need to take over, and you need to run things, you need to take a managerial position, you need to get a wife. And Priyavrata was kind of not really into it. He said, I, you know, I'm not happy, and I'm situated, why should I do this? And Lord Brahma said, you have to do it for service. It goes the other way, for service too. Like Srila Prabhupada said that he didn't want to take sannyas, yes? He said, I didn't want to take sannyas. So I didn't want to give up my family. I didn't want to. He said, my, my spiritual master keeps saying, no, you have to do it. You have to do it. You have to do it. Or Prabhupada coming to America. You know, there was a, many, many, many years ago, devotees were meeting with some scholars. And one of them looked at the devotees and said, there's something I understand about your spiritual master that you don't understand. And some of the devotees felt a little offended. And he said, I'm 70. So what does it mean to be 70 years old and leave the country you always lived in and leave Rindavan and go on a cargo ship? Now, sometimes it requires that level of personal sacrifice. Sometimes it requires that it may be in our own personal journey. You know, if we're chanting, 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 and we're not achieving the milestones that the acharyas tell us, maybe we need to change something. Maybe we need to make some personal sacrifice. If we're doing some preaching project and the result is simply people are fighting and nobody's coming and nobody's happy, maybe we need to make some kind of personal sacrifice. 
Maybe there's something that we need to do that we're neglecting to do, that we're hesitant to do. And Lord Brahma is setting this example as the head of our Sampradaya. He's saying, I'm willing to make a, a very, I would say it's a very extreme personal sacrifice. And what was his sacrifice? When we're talking about Lord Brahma's body, Lord Brahma doesn't exactly have a body the way we think of a body. We're talking more about his mentality and his perspective. And this is what's explained by the Acharyas. When you, get, when you say Lord Brahma gives up his body and accepts another body. He's taking it a very different point of view. And often we're, we're wedded to a particular point of view. We're thinking, you know, the way I see things is that's correct. I remember one of my godbrothers writing this one time on a philosophical point. He said, you know, this is what it says in the scriptures and that's it and that's final. And I was thinking, that's just your opinion about what you think it says. You're equating your opinion and your interpretation and your understanding with absolute truth. And I thought, you know, when Krishna says that is my opinion and when you say that is my opinion, it's not exactly equivalent. You know, generally, if, if we don't get the results we desire, we blame external forces, isn't it? Right? We don't look within and say, okay, maybe I have to make some, some, some kind of really serious change that requires a personal sacrifice. This one letter Prabhupada wrote, he says, if you're not getting along with others, it's not due to their lack of Krishna consciousness, but your lack of Krishna consciousness. He wrote, is that clear? And for most of us, that's not clear. If I'm not getting along with somebody, it must be their lack of Krishna consciousness. If, if I'm not able to have uh, results in my preaching, if I'm not able to help people become Krishna conscious, it must be their lack of sincerity. You know, if people were really sincere, they'd be willing to come and eat rice with all the chilies. You understand? It's not my cooking problem, it's their lack of sincerity. And so I kind of put it on the outside. You know, if I'm chanting for 25 years and I still am exactly in the same mentality I was, you know, 25 years ago, or I've made a little snail's progress, then there must be something wrong with the process instead of how I'm doing it. So here Lord Brahma is showing us a different way of, of dealing with, with difficulties in our service. Now I should also mention, and this is very important for a rounded perspective, that are we in control of the result? No. So we don't want to take this, this pastime and this explanation of the Bhagavatam and become totally results-oriented. That would bring us to what mode of nature? Passion. And to some extent, ignorance. Ignorance is interested in immediate external results. Passion is willing to work for long-term external results. Goodness wants internal results. So we, we can't be, if we want to be happy, we can't be external results oriented because we're only one of five factors in terms of achieving an external result. There's another four factors operating. And ultimately, it's daiva. Ultimately, as Lord Brahma also says, it's destiny. Daiva. 
ultimately it's destiny. So whatever I'm doing on an individual or collective basis, I'm not judging my sincerity and I'm not judging my connection with the Lord in terms of the external measurable results. At the same time, I can't be in the mode of ignorance and say, well, I don't care about the external results, so if nothing's happening, I'll just keep on doing what I'm doing that's not working. And this is nicely explained in Bhagavad Gita. I think it's in the third chapter. I cannot remember the number. Where free from ego and lethargy or free from feelings of possessiveness and lethargy fight. So not being lethargic. Oh, things aren't working out. Well, I'll just keep on doing things the same way, the same way, the same way, the same way. It's not my responsibility. But nor ego or feelings of possessiveness where I am the doer. And I'm just going to fight and fight and fight and change and change and change until I get the results that I want. So the mentality instead has to be, I've been given a service by the Lord, whether it's in my own spiritual development or whether it's in my external preaching. And I have to do my best. I demonstrate my sincerity by doing my best to try to get the results that Krishna's asked me to get. At the same time, my sense of self-worth is really dependent on my moment-to-moment surrender. Not in whether or not in the long run things work out exactly the way that I think that they should. So questions, comments, corrections, additions, subtractions, chastisements? My sense of self-worth depends on my moment-to-moment connection, my moment-to-moment sincerity. Am, am I trying to please Guru and Krishna in this moment? That's where my sense of self-worth comes from, that's where my joy comes from, that's where my peace comes from. If we sacrifice our sense of self-worth and our joy and our peace in the moment and make it dependent on some results in the future, we go right down to Rajaguna And devotional service done in Rajagun and Tamagun is not very pleasing to anybody. Not to the performer and not to the other people who have to deal with the performer. Is that okay? So they're not actually changing. That's a 
a very interesting question. You know, in the Bhagavatam, in the ninth canto, there's a, there's a story of sex change. Everybody knows that story? From the ninth canto? By the way, if, if you ever want to preach to really far out people, give me that story to me. I remember we had a, a girl came to our miracle, she was 13, and she was very um, belligerent, angry, she wasn't interested in Krishna consciousness. And I wasn't getting anywhere with her, and I handed her the Bhagavatam and opened it up to that story. And I said, here, why don't you read that? Anyway, she's now initiated. So there's a story in the Bhagavatam of this king who wanted an heir. There's a lot of focus in the Bhagavatam on succession, providing for succession. So he didn't have any children, and so he engaged his guru, the sister, in doing a yagya to get a son. So they didn't have any children yet, and in the middle of the yagya, the wife went up to the priest that was actually chanting the mantras, who wasn't the sister, and she said, actually, I'd like a girl. And so the priest, hearing that, he chanted the mantras for a girl instead of a boy. And then they produced this payasa, and they gave it to the wife, and she conceived a girl. And after the baby was born, at first the king was very happy, he didn't have any children, so he was very happy to get this child. And then he started thinking about it, and he thought, but wait a minute, I had asked Vasista to do a yagya to give me a male child who could become the king. So he went to Vasista and he complained. And Vasista said, oh, I know how to change the child into a male. But he did it mystically, so that the child actually really became a male. And then later on, this child, as an adult, was going with some other soldiers on some stallions, on some male horses, and they were traveling. And by chance or destiny, they traveled into a forest owned by Lord Shiva. And in that forest, one time when Lord Shiva had been intimate with his wife, some male sages had come, and Parvati was very embarrassed. And so she said, this forest is only for ladies. It's a ladies-only forest. I know in some parts of the world they have like ladies-only train cars and things like that. This is a ladies-only forest. But it was such that when she said that, it meant that any male, even any male animal who entered would turn female. So this, this prince and his associates and their horses, they entered this forest and they all became females, even the horses. So the prince was so upset by this situation that he didn't go home. He just kind of hung out in the forest. But when he hung out in the forest... Buddha, who was the son of the moon, found her there in the forest, married her by Gantarva rites, and I think had three children with her. So she was fully female. She had three children. And then at a certain point, she went to Vasista and said, um, can you help me out here? I'm supposed to be the prince, and now I'm the princess, and I can't really run the kingdom. And Vasista said, well, okay, but Lord Shiva had, you know, Parvati had this spell, this enchantment, and I, I, don't, I want to respect them. So one month you can be a female, and the next month a male, and you can go back and forth between being a male and a female for the rest of your life. And in the months that he was a male, he also married and produced children. So the citizens didn't particularly like that their king became a king and a queen every other month. And when he, she became old... He, she retired, took Vanaprastha, went to the forest, meditated on the Lord, and went back to home, back to Godhead. So there. But we see that this, I mean, this story, I understand this story is to basically a lesson that you are not that body. 
But this particular individual's name was Sejumna or Ela, depending on whether he was in male or female form. When male, he was fully male, and female, he was fully female. So today, when they do this, this surgery, that doesn't really happen. The, when they change a male to a female or a female to a male, they no longer have the ability to reproduce. You understand? So if, you're, if, you, if you were to get a sex change to become a man, you wouldn't be able to have children as a man. You wouldn't be able to really function as a man. You might look kind of man-ish and sound kind of man-ish, but you wouldn't really be a man. And if one of the men here decided to become a woman, you would look kind of womanish and sound kind of, kind of, sort of, sort of. But not really. I mean, usually, usually you can sort of tell if you have, you know, if you've ever met people who've gone through this transformation. I met one recently in Australia, and you're like, huh? It is something that just strikes you as being not something is not, you know, there. As far as psychology, I, I read a, a fascinating article of a, a woman trying to become a man in this way, and so she was getting testosterone. Um, hormonal treatments. And the interesting thing, I found this fascinating, that she wrote that she wasn't crying as much as she used to and she found it difficult to cry. She, he also said that uh, he was fighting more. That, that this person had become much more aggressive and found it much more difficult to cry. And the, this author's conclusion was that gender stereotypes are rooted in biology. And I thought, that's very interesting. That was basically my take on that. That's very interesting. Or one of the most famous cases was um, a young man who had a, a, a surgical accident when he was being circumcised. And so the doctors decided, well, let's just totally turn him into a girl. He was two years old. And not tell him. It was a very famous case. And this was in the 70s. And the, the doctor made propaganda that this individual had totally adjusted to being female, although he was born fully male. But that wasn't true. So he was making false propaganda. And actually this person acted psychologically more like a typical boy. And, of course, they had to get, this person had to get ongoing hormonal treatments and so forth and so on. And never really uh, adjusted to being female and at a certain point in, in uh, his life said, you know, I, I need to function as a male. So the psychology had not, had not changed. But it's, it's a very interesting, um, it's very interesting to look at that. You know, and people who want to transition, who feel they have the psychology of the other, do they really fully have the psychology of the other is a very interesting question. But in former times, they could do that. They could factually change your body. People like Vasista by mystic power and Parvati by mystic power could actually change your body. There's, of course, another example with Shikandi. Shikandi and some celestial being who arranged for gender change. But there were, that was a real thing. Did their psychology change along with their body? Probably. At least to some extent. But what they're doing now is just... I mean, I met a devotee in Europe who before becoming a devotee had changed from female to male and, uh, and then married a woman. 
and become a devotee. And anyway, the sad thing about it was that even the devotees were really giving this person a really hard time as if he could go back and reverse the process. You know, and I'm sure Prabhupada would have said, whatever you are, you are, just chant Hare Krishna. You know, it was kind of too late. But this individual told me, he said, in doing this, I totally ruined my health. Which makes sense, you know, if you cut up your body and pump your body full of hormones of the opposite gender, you're probably going to ruin your health. He said, I was, you know, he said, as a, as a woman, I was, I was healthy and I didn't have any problems, and now I'm just totally beset with health problems. Another thing that struck me on the psychological level is he felt that before transitioning, he had had all this pain in terms of gender identity. He just, you know, had all this psychological pain of feeling like I'm a man stuck in a woman's body. And after transitioning, he had all this pain of gender identity with how other people were treating him. So I thought, you know, and I said to him, I said, you didn't change your amount of suffering and you didn't change the area of life in which you had suffering. So before you had a lot of suffering in the area of gender identity, and now you have a lot of suffering in the area of gender identity. He said, all you've done is, is just change the flavor a little bit. But you haven't escaped your karmic destiny. So that's, you know, what they're, what they're trying to do nowadays is, is very demoniac. It, it's, I, I, I feel for people who have a disconnect between their psychology and their biology, however that may be. It must be very painful to have, to feel that your psychology doesn't match your biology. But we're, we're not supposed to counter our pain through demoniac means. We can counter our pain through transcendental means. And if you're not willing to do that, then cancel. Then try to cancel your pain through pious means. But if we try to cancel our pain through demoniac means, we're going to suffer the original pain, plus we're going to have to suffer by trying to cancel our pain by demoniac means. That's not... It's, that's not something we're allowed to do. And, and just because we have this, this medical science to sort of kind of do it doesn't mean that we're, that we're allowed to use it for that purpose. Does that... I hope that answers a very long answer, but I hope that answers your question. Yeah. I mean, but, but I, I do feel very badly for people who have a mismatch between their biology and their psychology. It must be an extremely difficult, painful situation, however it manifests. If the desires you have and the, the way you feel you are cannot be expressed through the body that you have, it must, it must be very difficult. We, we do have the assurance in the Shastra that if you have that situation, that this life isn't all in all. You know, if you really want to fly when you're a human, you can become a bird. There are people who try to change themselves into animals, are you aware of that? I've run into some of them in a, in a park in London. You know, and they've had surgical modifications and stuff so that they look like lizards. Or... Have you heard about this kind of thing? It's, it's just very unfortunate. You know, you could just say to them, look, if you really want to get a lizard body, it, it can be arranged. You know, just wait a little bit. Just act like a lizard. But you don't have to, you know have surgeons to try to modify your body to look like a lizard. It's not, it's not the way to do it. I mean, we have some 
something of that in some of the Sahajiya sects where they say, you know, the way I'm going to become a gopi is I'm going to dress like one now. You've heard of people who do that? Yeah, it's the same kind of thing. It, that doesn't, that, that's not how it works. You know, if, if you want, if, you know, if you're going to be a gopi, then first of all you have to realize that has to be a spontaneous realization. You can't be artificial. And then it's an internal meditation. It's not a, it's not, you know, men walking around with ankle bells and Okay, it is 9.01. We'll take this last one. Hopefully it'll be something I can give a 10-second answer to. Whoever Maharaji felt that his body was contaminated due to his material desire. And um, <coughs> you, you kind of touched on this, but um, I know I meet some devotees that they feel like karmically they've been given a body that just is so difficult to perform devotional service with. And um, and I feel like uh, there's a certain standard of devotional service that's presented that's impossible for them to achieve in, in this given body. So they they give up the process entirely. How do we encourage these devotees in this direction? Like how do we encourage them in the direction of? Well, first of all, all of us have a body that makes devotional service difficult. Does anyone here have a body that makes devotional service entirely easy? Who here has some impediment to bhakti in their life because of their body and mind? So, you know, welcome to the material world. And we all tend to think my suffering is unique. We look at everyone else and think, oh, they don't have an impediment from their body and mind, only I do. Can we please get a little real with this? What kind of body has no impediment for bhakti? A spiritual body. If we have a material body and a material mind, especially in the Kali Yuga, our bodies and or our minds are going to present some impediment to bhakti. So I ask this question all over the world. How many of you have things in bhakti that are so easy, you don't even think about them, you just naturally do them like breathing, it was never any struggle for you? How many of you have things like that? Come on, are you vegetarian? Is that hard? Anybody find it? It must be something that's easy. Come on. Gambling? Some people really struggle. Do you have some things in Krishna consciousness that you do them and you do them all regularly? You know, you do, but it, you have to work at it. It's some effort. How many of things like that? And how many of you things that you've made an effort for years and 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 you're still struggling with it? And you know what? That's going to be different for each of us. So if we each made a list of these are the things that are so easy, I don't even think about it. I don't wake up in the morning and go, Oh my God, I can't gamble. You know, I didn't say anything about it. So you have certain things that are super easy. Certain things that are, you know, we do them but with an effort. And certain things that despite our greatest effort, maybe we're still criticizing devotees or whatever. I understand. Some people have a, a, a lot of trouble being clean. So they have a lot of tr- trouble with their mentality towards devotees. Some people have a lot of trouble with being regulated. Whatever. And if we, if we had those lists and we compared them, we would see that it's different for everybody. 
you know, my super difficult, impossible, I don't know how I'm ever going to do a thing, might be your super easy thing. And vice versa. We might look at someone else and go, why can't you do that? What's your problem? So to focus on the areas where we find to be a huge challenge and we're making like snails progress and become discouraged by that and say, okay, I have to give up the process entirely is not very intelligent. It's just, it's just not very intelligent. Our main focus should be on the things where we have a taste and we have enthusiasm. That should be our main focus, frankly. And if we focus on that, what we see is gradually more and more and more stuff goes into the easiest breathing category. That's what we see practically. And, and I, I really became aware of this. I was somewhere in the Middle East, and some girl brought up, you know, what do I do when I have friends who aren't favorable to Krishna consciousness? How do I deal with that? And my internal voice said, Really? Like that's a problem? And then I thought, Armila, don't you remember when that was a problem? Don't you remember when that was your, a really, like that was the problem for you? I'm like, yeah, there was a time when, that, when my biggest problem was what do I do with friends and family that are unfavorable? It, was, it isn't a problem for me anymore. I mean, it's like, it's, it's nothing. And that, and that was when I understood, you know, the things that seem huge problems in this moment. If we keep on going and focus on what's, what, what, where we do have a taste, where we do have enthusiasm, where we are making progress, those things will eventually recede. And the example Prabhupada gives is a child learning how to walk. You know, when you first learn how to walk, you stand up for two seconds. Or even, like, how old is this child? 16 months. 16 months. So if you can watch her walking, she doesn't just sit down again. There she goes. Well, but if you watch her walking, her, her walking style is not very fluid, right? We call them toddlers because they don't walk fluidly and straight. They walk, actually, if you watch her, you'll see they kind of walk from the hip. Kind of a swing motion. Does she still fall down sometimes when she walks? Sometimes. Do we do that? So it, it's just like that. How does the child learn how to walk? They focus on their accomplishments. They stand up for two seconds and the child celebrates. They get all excited. <laughs> they get really excited. And the parents get really excited. They post it on Facebook. They call all their relatives. You know, my kid stood up for two seconds. And nobody says, yeah, but you were sitting down like 90% of the day. <laughs> Quit the celebration, kid, because they're real. <laughs> nobody says that. Nobody says that. And sometimes kids learning how to walk plateau. You'll see sometimes kids, all they do is stand up for a couple seconds, maybe for weeks. And then all of a sudden they can stand up for 10 seconds. And, then, and they may do that for a week. And then they stand up without holding on to something, but just for a couple seconds. And they stay at that plateau. And then maybe they take two steps. Maybe they're taking two steps for four months. 
And then all of a sudden, one day, they're taking eight steps. And then they're walking, but it's awkward. And if you watch a child who's just learned how to walk, you'll notice that all of their concentration is just in walking. You watch a child who's just learned how to walk. They can walk 10, 15, 20 steps, but they're, they're walking very awkwardly and they have their hands out like a trapeze artist. You know, and they're, they're, they're everything. And they fall, on, they fall a lot and they fall into people a lot too. If they're walking around the temple, you notice know, they're falling on all the devotees as they walk past them. And then they're at this stage. See, now she can walk and also do something. See that? And she's still her walking, her movements are awkward but she's able to walk without giving it her full attention. And for all of us, we just walk without thinking about it at all. So it works like that in bhakti. And all of us learned how to walk. Yes, we all did that. Talking is a similar pattern. So we all did that. And we just apply the same principle to bhakti. Focus on what you're doing right. Don't sit around lamenting all the time what you're doing wrong. You can do that, you know, a few times a year, maybe. But focus on what you're doing right. Work at work on that. Work at getting the higher taste. Work at work on that and keep building that, nourishing it, nourishing it, nourishing it, nourishing it. Fan the spark, fan the spark, fan the spark, fan the spark, fan the spark. And pretty soon the wood will be burnt up without you noticing it. And one day you'll look around and go, Oh my God, you'll hear somebody talking about a problem and all of a sudden you'll realize, I don't have that problem anymore. It may go away even without you noticing. And you're like, oh my God, I just don't have that. That attachment is gone. That problem is gone. Is that right? But if you give up, then you're just sitting on the floor the rest of your life. Shiva Prabhupada, Kita. Shiva Prabhupada, Kita.